Acts chapter 12. No more messing around. Acts chapter 12 tonight. And uh, just a little reminder of where we are at historically. Um, we are seeing, uh, last week we talked about how the Christians, they were, or they were first called Christians in Antioch because the persecution is ramped up. They're not very welcome in Jerusalem. And Antioch kind of seems to become a central location. And so we're seeing a lot of time pass. Now, we are more than 10 years now past the time of the resurrection of Christ. So the church has you know, been going. There's been revival going on for over 10 years. And it's just getting bigger and bigger because more and more people are hearing the gospel. They're you know, getting it to the Jews. They, get, they get, go to the Samaritans. And now they're just kind of going to everybody as they were supposed to. And we are. We're seeing great growth. Now, when it comes to some of these timelines. I last week when I covered some of those things, I'm going off what commentators are saying. It's we can't really figure that out just from the Bible. But if we use history too, we can get a pretty rough idea too because, you know, there are very historical events that take place. We're going to see here in the beginning of this chapter a reference to Herod, and what's interesting about Herod, uh he's mentioned several times in the Bible, but it's not always the same Herod. And we're able to kind of figure out which one it is through history because you know, history says a lot about these guys. And so that's kind of when you wonder where people get their timelines, they're looking at history. So we have some you know, periods of time mentioned, like it talks about him being a whole year in Antioch. So that gives us some idea of things. So if we can pinpoint the year from history when Herod died, then we can kind of go backwards and figure some of that out. So it's not just based on nothing that people come up with these things. They are using some history too, and I'm going to reference some things tonight that are based off of history, and it's okay to do that as long as it doesn't contradict the Bible. And there are some things the Bible just doesn't tell us certain details, but let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and because he saw it pleased the Jews... He proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Now, so I, I want to briefly cover this information about the Herods in the Bible because they are not all one and the same. And it's important too to just kind of understand who these guys were. Because we see in the Bible when they had kings, they were supposed to be in the, from the tribe of Judah. They were supposed to be in the line of, line of David. But when God fulfilled the prophecy of restoring uh, Israel to the land, which happened after the Babylonian captivity, one thing did not happen that God also prophesied during that time, and that was that He was going to restore David as king, which does not have to mean David himself, but the line of David. And so we see that that had not been fulfilled yet because even though they were allowed to rebuild their temple and go back to practicing their religion, they never got the king. The, they never got the throne back. They never had control of their land. And they will eventually once the throne of David is established again. But that is going to be done through Jesus Christ. All of the prophecies, and you guys know this, that are, were promised to Israel will all be fulfilled, but through Jesus Christ. And so the king of David, or the kingdom of David, the throne of David will be established through Jesus Christ. He will sit on the throne one of these days in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. We're looking forward to that day. But during this time in their history, 
the Herods, they were basically puppet kings. They were kings that were appointed by the Senate of Rome to be over the things of uh, Israel. And, you know, when these guys were kings, they were not very well liked by the Jews. It's even questionable whether or not they were actually Jews themselves. And even if they were, they were complete and total sellouts against Israel. They were puppets to Rome. They were very evil men. And I've thought about doing a whole message just in the Herods because they were, they were all just a bunch of reprobate scum. They, they really were. And so, uh, just some facts about them. The first one that the Bible mentions is, Her- is known as Herod the Great in history. He was the one that the Christmas story is talking about. Herod the Great is also the one, and the Bible doesn't give the details of this, but he's the one who restored the temple to its former glory. Because we see that when they built Zerubbabel's temple, that it was, let's try to keep that stuff quiet, all right? You know, help me out here. While they were trying to restore, uh, when they rebuilt the temple during Zerubbabel's day, they didn't, it was very inferior. But in Herod's day, to please the Jews, because these guys, while they didn't care about the Jews, they were like politicians. If we can keep these people happy, if we can keep them quiet, then things will be quiet over here and Rome will be happy with us. And so him beautifying the temple the way he did, it kept the Jews very happy and things were under control. And so uh, that was Herod the Great. But Herod the Great, uh, he, was, he feared when he, the wise men came and said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And he didn't like the sound of that. So what did he do? He ordered all the male children under two to be killed. And that was an extremely wicked thing to do. But that was, that was Herod the Great. The second one is Herod the Tetrarch. And uh, that word Tetrarch too might, might make you think of the number Tetra or Tetra, like Tetris, which is four. And uh, Herod the Great, when he passed off the scene, he actually divided the kingdom up in four parts and had all four of his sons rule over it. But the, historically... Herod the Tetrarch, he was a really wicked guy. You know, he ended up killing his brothers and uh, just a lot of wicked stuff. And he is the one that John the Baptist preached at. When you read about that, Herod, he is the one that had his brother's wife. Uh, the third one, or maybe it was, it might have been this one here. I forgot that killed all his brethren. Uh, but there was Herod Agrippa. And he is the one we're seeing here in chapter 12. This is not the same Herod that John the Baptist preached to. Several years have passed. This is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. And then the fourth and final one, you might know the name Agrippa, but he's known historically as Agrippa II. And he's the one that Paul preached to who said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. So these guys, we're gonna, we see them throughout the New Testament being mentioned, and they were. They were just these puppet sellout kings that were pretty much just stooges of Rome. And they were not good guys. They were really bad guys. And, uh, and so we see here that, again, they don't really care about the Jews, but they need to keep them happy. So when Herod has James, the brother of John, killed, it made the Jews so happy. He's like, let's go for Peter, too. You know, he's trying to score political points by killing these guys. That's the kind of, that's the kind of guy he was. This was a very, very wicked king. And so um, that's just a little bit of information on the Herods that I think it's important to understand. It's not always the same guy that you're reading about in the Bible. There was a lot of different ones throughout history. And so, and, and history, 
I mean, you study these guys, read what history has to say about them. They were, they were really bad guys. If you didn't think they were bad enough from the Bible, you know, history, you know, makes the Bible, it, it, it proves the Bible. It's like, yeah, these guys were really scummy kings. So, verse 4, so we're going to kind of like just hit almost do a few different subjects in this chapter, kind of hits on some random things. But it says, when he had apprehended him, talking about Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now, what is it talking about here when the Bible uses the term Easter? There's a ton of debate on this stuff. A lot of people will use this verse to prove that the King James is wrong, too, because it shouldn't say Easter. It should say Passover. It should say something else. It can't say Easter because we all know Easter's pagan. All right? We all know, everybody knows Easter's pagan. You know, Easter today, it means Easter bunnies, painting Easter eggs. And so, obviously, uh, that's what that has to mean right here. And there's a lot of really dumb arguments that people come up with and that they and anybody with an agenda, they kind of interpret this verse according to their agenda. But what if we just use the Bible? Okay, let's forget every let's forget all the documentaries you've watched about Easter and how pagan it is. Let's just use the Bible. And what was it trying to tell us when it mentions Easter? Let's see what we would come up with just from that. Because notice in verse 3, after it mentions he proceeded further to take Peter also, it says, then were the days of unleavened bread. Okay? Now, we actually know quite a bit about the days of unleavened bread. Turn over to Leviticus chapter 23. And we'll start reading in verse 4. It says, these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which he shall proclaim in their seasons. In the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. Everybody knows about Passover. Now, in the first day, ye shall have an holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein, but ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is an holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. So, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, it was all kind of one thing. It started with Passover and that... that specific day that 14th day that was passover that was the day that that angel of death it passed over the people if it saw the blood on the door but that day it triggered a week-long celebration or feast of unleavened bread so this was kind of a week-long thing that went on but they were you could say kind of two separate holidays and we also know from john chapter 19 and verse 14 when Jesus was, Jesus was crucified on the day of the Passover. Okay? Now, the observances of these things would usually start in the evening. That was kind of how it worked during that time. And Jesus, he was crucified in the morning. And you know when there was darkness, that was in the afternoon. And so in verse 14, it says, And it was the preparation of the Passover. So this is before the Passover officially starts. It's going to start that evening. And about the sixth hour... He said unto the Jews, Behold your king. So the sixth hour, that and I'm not going to get into all that because it's a little different in the book of John. But verse 31 says, The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. 
So we see that that particular Sabbath, all right, it was a high day. Why? Because this wasn't just your regular weekly Sabbath. This was a special yearly Sabbath that lasted for a week. Okay, so they were like, we've got to hurry up and get Jesus off the cross because we're not supposed to be doing any work. You know, once the evening comes and this time of Passover, which also includes the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so we've got to get this done. And so in verse 42, it says, There lay they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. So the day before that Passover gets going, you know, that was their preparation day. We've got to get everything ready. We've got to set everything up so we can basically take a week where we don't do any work. So we see all these references to these things. So if we just read the Bible, you know what we would look at? We would say that Easter is a reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's what we would, that's what we would call it based on the Bible. It referred, it specifically says when all this was going on that it was during the feast. And that's why when they take Peter too, they've got to put him in prison. They can't just kill him right away because they don't want to offend the Jews doing anything during this time. So he's thinking though, after Easter, what does that mean? Well, after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, after that celebration is over, then, you know, we'll kill Peter and then I'll score even more points with the Jews. So if we just read the Bible, we would just say Easter is a reference to the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? That, that's what we would do. But again, how did, that, how did we get that word? You know, why is that word being used? Well, the truth is, the word uh, Passover, that's actually, a, you know, a made-up English word that I think is very appropriate because, you know, again, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. And so if you're going to name something that we don't have an English word for, when you're referring to a celebration where an angel came and if they had the blood on the door, it passed over them, as it says in the Bible, Passover sounds like a pretty good term for that, doesn't it? But Tyndale is the one that actually came up with that word. William Tyndale, who did one of the earlier English translations of the Bible. And so when, uh, I'm going to read this to you, it says, when Tyndale applied his talents to the translation of the New Testament, from Greek into English, he was not satisfied with the use of a completely foreign word and decided to take into account the fact that the season of the Passover was known generally to English people as Easter. So the English people during that time, the 1500s, they were referring to that time as Easter. And so Tyndale just went ahead and used that word. It says, notwithstanding the lack of any actual connection between the meanings of the two words, the Greek word occurs 29 times in the New Testament and Tyndale has Esther or Easter 14 times, Esther lamb 11 times, Esther fest once, and Paschal lamb three times. So when Tyndale began his translation of the Pentateuch, he was again faced with a problem in Exodus 12:11 and 21 other places and no doubt recognizing that Easter in this context would be an uh, I don't even know, anachronism, he coined a new word, Passover and used it consistently in all 22 places. It is therefore to Tyndale that our language is indebted for this meaningful and appropriate word. His labors on the Old Testament left little time for revision of the New Testament, with the result that while Passover is found in his 1530 Pentateuch, Esther remained in the New Testament of 1534, having been used in his first edition several years before he coined the new word Passover. 
Okay, so here's what we have to understand about that word Easter. When the Bible was translated, it was just a word used to describe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's all it was. Now, here's what we've got to understand. And it seems like King James people are the ones that struggle with this sometimes. But just because a word changes meaning over time does not mean that the Bible changes meaning. Do we all understand that? And so listen, if you convince me, Easter means Easter eggs. Easter means pagan. All right, whatever. Okay, it doesn't matter. What did the Bible mean when it was written? What did the translators mean when they wrote it? And it is very clear that they used to use that word to just describe that the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. That was the word that they used to use. In fact, in the Geneva Bible notes, uh, when it's um, referring to the Passover in its notes, it calls it Easter as well. So that's just what English people used to call the word, uh, the term Passover. That's, that's what they used to call it. We don't really do that anymore. And yet, we've got one place in our Bible where it uses the term Easter instead of Passover. But you know what? We don't really need to get freaked out by that because there is such a thing as a synonym. Two different words with the same meanings. It's very important we understand that. And often, especially in the dispensational King James only world, anytime a different word is used, they try to give it a different meaning. Sometimes they just used a variety of words. That's all there is to it. We don't need to try to to change it and make it different. Sometimes in the Bible, you know, when it says for who's in, in the New Testament, for whosoever believeth shall not be ashamed. Where in the Old Testament, whosoever believeth shall not make haste. Well, we got to figure out what the difference is between make haste and ashamed is. There is no difference. It means the same thing. And there's a lot of things like that in the Bible where it uses different terms, but those words have the same meaning. And I'm not saying let's just go change these words around or anything like that, but we don't have to look for some different meaning whenever we see words used that way. But for some reason, I don't know, it's just weird, faulty thinking. People think if uh, if a word is used differently, then that must mean there's some different meaning. So in a lot of the King James only world, They've got to try to make Easter, you know, into something that it wasn't really. Where it's like, if you're just a normal King James onlyist, you can just say, Easter is another word for Passover. And just because the meaning of the word has changed over time, does not mean the meaning of the Bible has changed. If we let the Bible define itself, if all we read was the Bible, he just referred to the days of unleavened bread, that's a reference to Passover and the seven day feast. And we can only assume that that's what it involves. And if you look historically, Easter and Passover meant the same thing. So hopefully that makes sense to everybody. It's not really that big of a deal, but people make a huge deal out of it all the time when they're trying to disprove the King James Bible. And then a lot of people too trying to prove the King James Bible make really dumb arguments with that. It's like, you just, you can trust your Bible, but don't let, don't fall for this thing that new meanings means the Bible has changed. A unicorn, I heard a Ruckmanite pastor one time, he said, you know, the Bible talks about unicorns. You say, what is that? He's like, well, I think it's a horse with a horn coming out of his head. 
Okay, well, did it have a rainbow fall on it? You know, as it flew through the sky too? Okay, listen. The definition of unicorn can change over time. Okay, my little pony is not now a real thing. Sorry, girls. But it's just not, it's, it's not, it's not a real thing. And, you know, you have to figure out what it meant in that day. These, these should be simple things. You know, he, he said, uh, it mentions like this, this satyr or satyr, I forgot how you say it exactly. And he's like, I, I believe it's a half man, half goat. Like, are you kidding me? You really think they used to be half men, half goats walking around the earth? You're nuts. Hey, that's, that, is, well, that might be what that word means now. But that's not what it meant back then. I, th- I think you're completely insane. But, you know, sometimes King James oldest, man, they're embarrassing sometimes. And I, 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 I like to think I am as King James only as you can get. But, you know, I, st- I think you can be King James only and still be a normal human being and not act like a weirdo. Hey, I just, uh, I, I think that's really, really crazy. And it's usually the hardcore, like, Ruckmanite dispensationalists that do this stuff. We don't have to do that. And so, if people ask, you know, ask my opinion, what do you think Easter means there? Well, if I use Ruckmanite thinking, it's like, well, apparently they painted eggs back then too, you know. <laughs> but if I just use my Bible, I will say it's a reference to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's all it talks about in there. So, we don't need to make more out of it than that. So, back to our story in verse 5. It says, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And kings have always done arrests and trials as a way to gain support throughout history. I mean, the, and the timing of these things is always very interesting. Because so, you know, sometimes, sometimes they need to do things to kind of help settle the commoners down. Okay? And if you think that some of these arrests... Listen, Biden just got a big terrorist, apparently. Okay? They, they can get these people whenever they want. Sometimes they need to make themselves look like, hey, we need a victory. Let's go kill a random terrorist and tell everybody he was a big guy. You know, and then to kind of calm people down. Hey, the left's not very happy with us right now. Let's go raid Donald Trump's house and see if we can get some dirt on them and that'll make all of them happy. You know, they're, they're always trying to do something and every once in a while they got to offer up a scapegoat. You know, every once in a while, I'm kind of hoping Biden, you know, they, they do, they just finally offer that guy out. It's like, you know, as long as they take Kamala with them. You know, and, and they, they do that stuff sometimes. But listen, folks, if all of a sudden, you know, something were to happen and they're like, yeah, let's, you know, let's get rid of these people. It's probably not really time to say, you know, hallelujah for the Constitution, God bless America, all that stuff. They're probably just giving the commoners what they want while they do something else shady in the background to put one over on us. They often do these just political stunts. They often arrest people just to keep certain crowds happy. It's, it's a bunch of garbage, but it just shows us that nothing's changed. This arrest was not because Peter was actually causing problems. It was because the Jews were ticked off and Herod needed to get some support. And so that's why he's going after Peter. So, it says in verse 7, uh, but, or in verse 5, prayer is going on without ceasing. Keep that in mind. Prayer without ceasing is going on. And it says, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, 
arise up quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were, uh, when they were past the first and second ward, they came into the iron gate that leadeth into the city, which opened to them of his own accord, and they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And so Peter, he just thinks this whole thing's a vision. This was so cool what's going on. I mean, the angel has come, you know, chains fall off, gates are opening, guards are all sleeping. He thinks he's just having a vision, but then all of a sudden the angel gets him to safety, the angel leaves, and Peter's like, I'm awake. This just happened. I'm out of prison. God has just done a great thing. And we see this miracle was a direct result of prayer that was going on in the church without ceasing. And so in verse 12, it said, And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And Peter knocked at the door of the gate. A damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And I know this looks kind of weird. She wouldn't even open the gate for him. But listen, some women are just so anxious to be the first to spread the news that they're going to drop everything and not even take time to open the door. You know, she's just, she's just that excited. All right. You know, and I think a lot of people could relate to that. And so verse 15, and they said unto her, thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, it is his angel. Now, this was funny. We, we just heard a good sermon about um, on this passage when we were at the church planners conference. But these people are literally having a prayer meeting for God to get Peter out of prison. And sure enough, God answers their prayer. A young lady comes and says, hey, God answered our prayer. And they said, you're mad. Leave us alone so we can get back to praying. Now, now, now think about that for a minute. Okay, just, just keep this in mind. I think there's some really important lessons that we can learn from this that we can definitely all relate to. There, and then, so after she just keeps on pushing them, and after she convinces them, no, I actually heard his voice. Then there's like, you know what? It was his ghost. Because Peter's dead. Now leave us alone so we can go back to praying for God to get him out of, <laughs> out of prison. There, there, there's, there's no way God answered our prayer we, yeah, yeah, we're going through the motions of prayer, but he's definitely dead. You just heard his ghost. I mean, do these people have a whole lot of faith? Obviously they don't. Okay. Obviously they don't have much faith, but it says in verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Listen, we should not act so surprised when God answers our prayers. Now, I, I actually have a message on prayer I'm wanting to do pretty soon, and I've got something very specific uh, that I, that I want to do when it comes to this subject. I just, uh, I, I, I'm hoping to get to it soon. Uh, this, uh, but this message was reminding me of this a lot. But folks, we, we get way too surprised when God answers our prayers. That's a problem. Okay? We shouldn't act like that. When God answers our prayers, we shouldn't be surprised. We should 
be expecting God to answer prayers. We really should have more faith than we do. And I'm telling you, we don't take advantage of this prayer thing near as much as we should. We, we really don't. I don't believe we do as individuals. I don't believe we do as a church. We're not taking advantage. We have a really good track record of getting prayers answered around here, and yet we still don't do it that often as if we think God's not going to do something when we have no reason to think that God's not going to do something. We have every reason to think He is going to do something. It's really, you know, when you, when you look at these things, it's real easy to get critical of these people, but then it's real hard to not look at ourselves and say, you know what, we're pretty sorry ourselves when it comes to this. But let me point out just a few things about this, okay? Because they shouldn't have acted this way. But while this was kind of bad, this passage is actually encouraging for a few reasons. Because one, we see God answered their prayer even though they didn't have that much faith. And you know, sometimes we don't have that much faith, do we? You know, sometimes we just, our mind and our heart is not where it should be. And, but aren't you glad that you don't have to just be Mr. Superfaith? You know, just no doubts, nothing wavering for God to listen to your prayer and maybe even answer your prayer? That, that encourages me from this. We see here from this, I think God just blesses the effort either way. So I don't feel like praying. Just do it anyway. Well, I, I just don't have a whole lot of faith right now. Just, do you have enough faith to just go ahead and pray anyway? Because did, did you know just the act of doing it shows a little bit of faith? And I'm telling you right now, I, I believe that anytime you pray... It's not in vain. Anytime you go to God, He's listening. I think it helps if your heart's right. I think it helps if you're full of, of faith. You know, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But you know what? I think a pathetic, crummy prayer of a guy with little faith might do something too. You know why? Because we have a very merciful God. We have a God who wants to show Himself strong. He wants to be glorified. He wants to answer our prayers. But you know what? We have that because we ask not. We, do, we don't ask for enough things. And I'm telling you, we just need to go ahead and do it. And the other thing we learn from this is we don't need to wait until we conjure up the faith or feeling. We just need to do it. And I think that's what a lot of people do. I know everybody in here wants, your, wants to get your prayers answered. I know that. But, and, and, and we do, we know that we really should have a lot of faith. I mean, we know we ought to go into that prayer closet. I mean, just with full expectation that God is going to answer that prayer. I mean, we, feel, we, you know, we want to feel like we're going to go in there and just get under the glory spout and we're just going to have a time talking to the Lord. We're going to talk to Him. He's going to talk to us. We might do a little shouting and whooping and hollering and maybe even shedding a few tears and we're going to come out of there and then, man, our prayers are going to get answered for sure. But you know, sometimes we just, you're not going to feel that way. Remember what Job said? He's like, I, he's like every way I look, I can't behold Him. I can't find Him. But, he, but you know what he said? But he knoweth the way that I take. And when he had tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job, I know he did a lot of prayer during that time of his difficulty, but he's not hearing from God and he feels like God doesn't hear him. But you know what he did? He just said, you know what? I'm just going to do it anyway. He knows what's going on. I know he knows. I'm not feeling it right now, but I'm just going to do it anyway. And that's what we've got to do. Folks, if we wait until we're feeling it, then we're probably just never going to even pray it. 
And I do. I hope you feel it. I hope that pretty soon when I do this message on prayer, I hope after I'm done with that, me- when I'm done with that message, I hope you're all feeling it. I hope you're feeling it so much, y'all come flooding to the altar. I mean, just pouring your prayers out. We just start seeing prayers just answered like that, you know, and just all these magical things happening. That would be really cool. But you know what? There's a good chance that after I get done preaching that message, I might bomb that message. But let me tell you, I know what I'm planning on preaching. It's from the Bible, and it's going to be good. I might not deliver it very well. And when I get done with it, you might not feel it. You might not feel like doing any prayer, but let me tell you, if I can just get you to just do it anyway, you might be surprised. Because again, you know, everybody everybody thinks they've figured out how to get God to answer the prayers. And a lot of people have wrote books on it. A lot of people have preached sermons, how to get all your prayers answered. Let me tell you all the sins I've repented of, and since I've repented of all those things, God gives me everything I wanted. And the first thing you all need to do, you all need to start tithing. That'll help you get your prayers answered. You know, whatever I need you to do, that's, that's what I'll do. That's how you get your prayers answered. But folks, listen, I've never found the magical formula. I really haven't. Because I see people that I perceive as disobedient sometimes get their prayers answered. I see people I perceive as obedient not get their prayers answered. I mean, I see myself as who I think I'm right all the time, not get my prayers answered sometimes. And then other times, you know, I haven't figured it all out. Here's one thing I know 100% for sure. God wants to hear me pray. And if I'm not feeling it, you know what? Mark 9:23, the man who brought his possessed son to Jesus Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Mm. All right. I just got to make myself believe. All right. Get away, devil. Stop telling me stuff. You know, it's like, all right. I got to get this. I got to get these doubts out of my head. How do I get these doubts out of my head? Folks, I haven't figured out how to control all that stuff. I haven't. But let me tell you something. Listen to what this guy says. Straightway, the father of the child cried out and said with tears. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. He just got honest with Jesus. I, I do. I believe you. But I've got, I've got some problems here. And I need you to help my unbelief. And you know what Jesus said? Uh, I'll cast some of the demons out of them. No, he, he gave the guy what he asked for. He gave the guy what he wanted. You know why? Because the guy asked. I'm, I'm, we... I, we see so many times in the Bible where Jesus was disappointed at people's lack of faith. Look at the way they acted when Jesus showed up at Lazarus' grave. Nobody thought He was going to raise Him from the dead. They wanted Him to. They had called for Him. But Jesus still went ahead and did it. Do, do you not see how often in the Bible God does great things in spite of how pathetic everyone is? So maybe what we should try doing is instead of, and, and I'm not telling you, go ahead and work on your patheticness all you want. We should always be working on that. But stop thinking your prayers are going to be answered based on your lack of patheticness. And let's just say, you know, let's start depending more on God's awesomeness. And go to Him in spite of how pathetic we are. In spite of how sorry we are. In spite of the doubts. Just do it anyway out of obedience. Folks, I haven't figured out how to get myself always feeling 
like doing what I'm supposed to do. But sometimes we've got to do things whether we feel like it or not. And you know what? I do. I think we ought to do things with a good attitude. We ought to shoot for a good attitude. But sometimes there's, there's just some things that no matter what, we know it's the right thing to do and we should do it whether we feel like it or not. And let me tell you, there's a lot of times I don't feel like praying. We should, we should always feel like praying. But you know what? We don't always feel like praying. You know what you need to do? You need to just do it anyway. Just do it anyway. And if this story doesn't prove that, you know, I don't know what else to tell you. These people were pathetic. They are literally in the middle of praying for God to answer their prayer. Somebody came and said, God answered our prayer. You're crazy. Now leave us alone so we can go back to praying. That, you know how weird that is? You know what? It's not that weird. Because we're like that all the time. And I am. I'm, I'm excited about this message I want to preach. Because I do. I, I think we need to take advantage of the amazing God that we have. And I, and I think we're, I think we miss out on a lot because of that. So verse 17, but he beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Uh, and he said, go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Now I'm, I'm fixing to start preaching that message I want to preach, but let me just say this too. Peter, he, he wanted to make sure that the other brethren knew what had happened. Now, why do you think he did that? Why was it so important that they tell James and the other brethren that Peter's out of prison? Now, obviously, they were probably worried about him. I get that. But you know what else? They were probably worried about themselves because they're specifically going after Jesus' disciples. And so, Peter knows, hey, if James and the other brethren hear what God did for me, you know what that will do? That will encourage their heart. And folks, I'm fixing to start preaching that message. Alright, I'm saving it. But let me tell you something. We have a responsibility, an obligation, when God answers our prayers, to let people know about it. Not just because not just we're bragging, but because other people need to be encouraged too. We're constantly supposed to be reminding people that God answers prayers. And you know how often we pray for things and God answers our prayers and we say nothing. You know how often we raise our hand in church, pray for this, God answers that prayer, and and we never raise our hand again to say, thank the Lord God answered that prayer. You know what? That's not right. That's not right. When God answers that prayer, you need to let people know because we might have somebody sitting in the church, they never raise their hand asking for prayer. You know why? Because they don't think God's going to answer their prayers. Because in their minds, he doesn't answer any of your prayers because you're not telling anybody about it. We've got to talk about these things. This is, this is really important. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm preaching that this Sunday. All right, it's coming Sunday. Um, I'm, I'm going to make it happen. Uh, but very, very important thing. So verse 18, now as soon as it was the day, uh, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him, he found him not. He examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And they went down from Judea to Caesarea and their abode. Now, there was no doubt a miracle took place here. But again, Herod's got to look good. So we got to have somebody to blame. We can't just tell everybody God got him out of prison because that's what had happened before. Peter got put in prison before earlier in the book of Acts. And remember what happened? God got him out of prison and everybody knew. Everybody knew what happened. But they're like, we can't let people know it was God. Because then the people, they fear the people more than they feared God. 
Isn't that pathetic? That is politicians, ladies and gentlemen. That is the people in power. All they care about ever is staying in power. And so, you know what? Peter got away. We've got to explain this to the people. I made all the Jews happy. I captured them. Oh, you know what? These soldiers, they let them out. They're bad soldiers. Let's go kill them. And, you know, it wasn't the soldiers' fault. They didn't do anything, but these guys ended up dying as a result of it. So, but they had to let someone take the fall because they just refused to give God the glory. So verse 20, And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberman, their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. And man, I wish that would happen to some of our politicians. I would love it. You say, that is a terrible attitude. I need to get over it because that's exactly how I feel. I would love to see that happen with some of these people. But let me point out a couple things to you about this. So first off, there's no doubt these people, when they are shouting it as the voice of a God and not of a man, they didn't think it was the voice of a God. Herod is a king who's trying to please everyone. So you know what they're doing? They're buttering up the guy that's giving them everything they want. That's what they were doing. They're flattering him. But you know what? This guy was such a pile of garbage. He was so arrogant. He's like, they're right. And God saw that. God was not impressed one bit. God's like, I'll, I'll show you. Because you know what we are? Remember what God told Adam? Dust thou art. And you know what? You're nothing but dirt. And you're full of worms. And they ate him up right there. I don't know what that would have looked like. Uh, you know, it, it's my opinion that when he fell over dead and everyone looked at him, that he probably looked immediately like a rotting corpse that had been eaten, you know, like it looks when the worms get in him. You know, that's my opinion. And that would have been really weird for the people to see. And, um, you know, that, but uh, I, I believe that this is something too. I don't think this is a coincidence, but I find it interesting that Herod has one of Jesus' disciples killed. James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' closest disciples. It was always Peter, James, and John were kind of the main ones that were with Jesus all the time. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in the same chapter and around the same time when Herod has James killed, that God lets him get lifted up with pride a little bit. Cause, and I believe that part of what got him killed during that time was what he did to James too. I think God had already determined, you're going down, buddy, for messing with James. And, you know, I'm going to let you get lifted up because I'm going to make sure when you fall, I want it to be really good. And God does that a lot. There's a lot, and, I, and I'm not going to take time to go into examples in the Bible, but often when God would, de, you know, determine destruction and judgment on somebody, he wouldn't do it immediately, but he would allow them to kind of fill up their transgression so they could get maximum wrath. And so God often will do that with people. There are times when people, they cross a line with God and God doesn't, he, God doesn't do anything immediately right then. But when they cross that line, that is when God determines, I'm going to get them. And then God allows them to just do a little more 
That way it can be manifest to everybody how wicked they were. Because if he just if if God just killed people when they did like that one really bad thing behind closed doors that not everyone saw, then there's not going to be as much of a lesson for everyone. So often people they do they do something that is going to get them in trouble with God, but God allows them to kind of do some more things so he can just you know manifest that it was his judgment on him when it finally comes down. And so I I personally think that's what happened with Herod. We see God kind of did that with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had already crossed the line, but it's like God allowed him to go on and just do some more. Kind of so he could nail him even harder. And and so I think that is kind of what we have going on with Herod right here. So after this takes place, after Herod dies, it says in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. And so in spite of more intense persecution, the word of God is just being multiplied. I mean, the church is growing People are being saved. The revival has not been hindered at all. The persecution, the persecution has never stopped the Word of God. It almost makes it better. It, it really does. And I, I think that's a big problem that we, or one of the problems in our country why we're so lame. It's like there's almost not enough persecution. And so because of that, people, they get comfortable. They get married to their treasures and their blessings and you know, all those things that they have. And then they start fearing losing it. But you know, I, I think one of the best things that ever happened to the IFB was 2020. It caused a lot of these people to step up their game a little bit. And, you know, and I think when it finally goes down in the tribulation, I think we're going to start being impressed by some of these people that are kind of lame right now. If they're the real deal. And I, I think we're going to see a lot of people saved during that time. So verse 25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And so that, uh, when it says they had fulfilled their ministry, I believe, you know, that's clearly a reference to what was referred to in Acts eleven twenty nine, where they were commissioned to kind of take up a collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem. So that's what, so after they had done that job that they were given, um, you know, they, uh, they end up uh, joining up with John Mark. And so it says in verse 30, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of, or that was from uh, last week, I'm sorry about, uh, about that. So that's the last verse there. So they team up with John whose surname is Mark. So after they fulfill this ministry, they team up with John Mark. And now what we are about to see as we go into chapter 13 is now we're finally about to see the shift in focus to the Apostle Paul. Because what, what we've been seeing, all right, obviously the book of Acts is a historical book and it covers a lot of stuff. But if we wanted to just kind of get the main theme of the book of Acts, what it really is, is it's showing us how the gospel was ultimately rejected by the Jews and then how God ended up going to the Gentiles. And what it is, is and basically what we're seeing is how you know, because the book of Genesis, it's showing how everything went to, or how, how Israel became a nation. How everything ended up becoming focused on them. That's kind of what Genesis is. It's their history. And then the focus kind of goes on Israel. In the book of Acts, we're kind of seeing how things were with the Jews, but then it ends up going to the Gentiles. And it's, this is really, the book of Acts is really the story 
of how we got the gospel. That's what we're seeing. And it was it started with the ministry of Peter, but then later it ends up being commissioned to the apostle Paul who does, you know, the greatest work that any man has ever done that we are still benefiting from today. As a as a church, I mean, how we operate is based primarily off the doctrines and the teachings and instructions of the Apostle Paul. So this is our history right here, folks. We should read the book of Acts the same way the Jews read the book of Genesis. This is all, that The book of Genesis was their history. It was how they came to be. It was how God chose, how God chose them as a people. The book of Acts is how we came to be, how the gospel got to us and how we became God's chosen people. The book of Acts is our Genesis. And you know what? It's not about genealogies. It's not about, it's not about a physical lineage. It's about a spiritual lineage. It's about Jesus Christ. And so to sum up what we've seen in chapter 12, it's the rise of persecution in the church, but also the growth of the church. And these were, these were very difficult times. A lot of bad stuff was going on, but it did not hinder the work of God and great works were being done. And so next week, we will continue on and we will start now finally seeing the focus on the Apostle Paul who's going to do some pretty amazing things. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this uh, another great chapter, Lord, of our history. I pray it will help us, Lord, to apply these things properly in our life, to have a proper understanding of these Scriptures so we're not confused on uh, some of the weird teachings that uh, are out there from the book of Acts. And Lord, we thank you for what you've done uh, with us and that we're able to be a part of this ministry uh, that began 2,000 years ago. And I pray, Lord, you'll help us to faithfully uh, operate this way until your return. In your name we pray. Amen.